Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Carmen Pugliafito. I'm here with Dr. Tony Stefader of the Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston. And uh, Tony is going to join us on retinal synthesis today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Tony has done some really groundbreaking research on retinal tamponades. And that's today's subject, really, novel retinal tamponades. Um, you've done such great work, but retinal tamponades have been a subject for the last hundred years. Isn't that correct? Yes, it's, um, yeah, as far as I know, the, the first gas injection was done more than a hundred years ago, or air, air injection. So um, it's been an area of interest for a long time for the field. So can you, can you discuss the history of, of uh, tamponades and how, how they've evolved to the present? Yeah, um, I'm not an expert on, on the history of, of retina surgery, but, um, but you know, obviously the pursuit of a treatment for retinal detachment has been something that uh, people were struggling with um, and una unable to easily achieve um, for decades. Um, and it was only really in the sort of 70s and 80s that the surgery began to get more refined. Um, I think Ohm was the first person to inject air into the eye as an attempt to treat retinal detachments um, in the early 1900s. And then um, I think, if my understanding is correct, Rosengren um, in the late 30s uh, combined external drainage of subretinal fluid with air injection. Um, and so I, you know, that combined with this understanding that retinal holes were the cause of retinal detachments, um, and that if you opposed, reopposed the retina to the choroid and you diopthermized those breaks, you could, um, treat retinal detachments. It was all pretty rudimentary. Um, but there was definitely an understanding that, uh, something from the inside pushing the retina back out against the choroid, um, was helpful. Um, in terms of keeping the retina attached uh, while uh, the diathermy in that case, or laser now, um, uh, results in adhesion between the retina and, and the RPE. So, um, you know, in terms of modern day surgery, you know, SF6, C3F8, I mean, these were um, in common use in the 80s. Um, and, you know, it was kind of amazing to us, as, uh, me and Tommy, who, who you know, we co-founded this, this uh, pursuit this, when we were residents, um, at developing a better tamponade. And it was amazing to us that the same tamponade, C3F8, SF6, the same approach um, had been unchanged for you know, 40 years. And it imposes a big burden on the patients. And so you know, it, it didn't seem like um, it was, um, it seemed like an exciting idea to try to pursue a better way to do this surgery that would eliminate that burden on the patients. And um, probably we found out later, there was a reason why no one had, had done that in the last 30 or 40 years. Well, and of course, there's silicone oil. There's also silicone oil, of course, and the approval history of that is interesting. Um, you know, that was approved during the AIDS epidemic, CMV retinitis, and it was approved, you know, as a tamponade for, for those cases, detachments associated with those cases. Um, and yes, you know, silicone oil is effective, um, but there's big limitations there. The patients still have to position, of course, um, and... Um, there's definitely some literature about the, the final visual outcome, uh, on average being worse in patients that have silicone oil tamponade. Um, and you can't see why the oil is in the eye very well, of course, and you still need a removal surgery at some point. So, um, multiple ways to improve on that too. So what's the ideal retinal tamponade? 
the ideal retinal tamponade, um, or maybe we just call it sealant, um, is uh, a, a, a something that's applied to the retinal breaks. And that can be from filling the entire eye or it could be from just applying something focally to the retinal breaks that prevents fluid from accessing the subretinal space while the chorioretinal adhesion um, forms after laser. And ideally, um, that tamponade does not rely on the, pos the position of the patient's head or eyes. Um, and ideally, you can see clearly, um, so it doesn't cause a refractive shift um, that burdens the patients for weeks or months after surgery. And then um, ideally, you can fly, um, and ideally, you don't need any kind of removal surgery, um, that it just biodegrades and clears naturally from the eye without complication. Um, a lot of people had thought about using hydrogels um, to achieve this kind of tamponade um, in the past, but um, efforts were limited by uh, inflammation um, and cataract formation and high um, intraocular pressure upon clearance from these, uh, upon clearance, natural degradation of the molecule and clearance from the, from the eye. Um, so an ideal tamponade solves the, the burdens placed on the patient. It eliminates the, um, the component of compli patient compliance in, in the outcomes of retinal surgery. Um, and it doesn't have any, doesn't cause any uh, problems to the eye itself. How did you get interested in, in seeking the ideal retinal tamponade? Well, Tommy and I uh, were residents and, uh, you know, rotating through Dean Elliott's clinic at Mass Lionier. Uh, it was obvious to us that the patients were all complaining about their back and their neck uh, more than they were about their eye. And many people said it was the worst week of their entire life. And if you ask people who've been through this, they will say, yeah, that was the worst week of my entire life, actually. Um, and, um, you know, that's striking as a resident with kind of an outside view. Um, I think people in the field, you know, said, well, it, it works pretty well. You know, I mean, the retina, retinas are attached and you know, this, <laughs> but, but, you know, from an outside view, you're like, well, we are also torturing the patients to get this reasonably good outcome. So can we still get the reasonably good outcome or maybe even a better outcome and eliminate this torture? Um, and so that's kind of how, how it started. Um, and uh, what became a thought exercise uh, turned into collaborations with chemists and um, formation of a company and, and you know, moving all the way through to uh, clinical trials. So uh, how did you seek out chemical assistance? Well, that's one of the benefits of being in a place where there's a lot of innovation. You know, in Boston, um, there's a there's a ton of um, there's a whole ecosystem around uh, medical devices, innovation, um, and pharma. And uh, basically, we just kind of asked around, and people suggested various um, uh, polymer chemists that might have be able to weigh in. And so we went to um, couple different polymer chemists with basically a list of the criteria that we needed. You know, is there an ideal substance out there um, that could perform um, in this manner? And the major criteria we were looking for was, you know, we needed, a, we wanted a hydrogel that you could put into the eye that would form a gel inside the eye, but could go through a small cannula. Um, you know, people had tried putting hydrogels in the eye to treat retinal detachments in animals, at least through you know, and it worked, but they had to make these big incisions in the eye to get the hydrogel into the eye without shearing the hydrogel to liquid. Um, and so our basic concept was, you know, if we developed a, a hydrogel that worked like an epoxy, 
you know, it's liquid components, you mix them together and then they form the gel in situ. Um, that might work. You know, you could do the surgery, you have the retina attached under air, you could inject your hydrogel as a liquid and it would form the rigid gel inside the eyeball itself. Um, and then other key criteria were we wanted the degradation products to be teeny tiny. Um, you know, we were, our goal was like, you know, let's have the thing clear just through the retina, not even require the TM, make the, make the breakdown molecules so small um, with the goal of eliminating, you know, high pressure upon hydrogel clearance. Um, so it started with, you know, the list of criteria um, and uh, then, you know, I get identifying a class of polymers and then a lot of modifications from there um, to make the polymer work well for the, the indication. And then also things that we as doctors don't necessarily think about, but like making sure the polymer could actually be manufactured in a reliable way. And that there was a way to scale that manufacturing and there'd be a way to sterilize the product. Um, other things like that, which um, you realize after your few steps down the road are uh, essential to something actually uh, being a therapy. So are, uh, how many iterations of compounds have you gone through? Um, well, I'd say most, you know, the, the, the key backbone, key concept of the polymer is, is similar to what we had um, come to pretty early, but um, there is a lot of modifications around like what concentration, you know, um, how, do you, um, how, how do you solubilize these things? For instance, when we first started, um, you had to take the, the powder and you had to heat it up and shake it for like an hour to get it to go into solution. And it's only stable in the solution for, you know, an hour. So that's not clinically viable. That's not gonna work in the OR. Tell, tell the doctor, okay, an hour before the surgery, you know, boil this thing over on the back bench and shake it. Um, and so uh, there's been a series of iterations to get to a uh, clinically reasonable or clinically useful product. Um, but I was, you know, it's still an epoxy at the end of the day. And the intellectual property um, that everything's based on is, is essentially this epoxy concept. So tell me about what the compound is today. So um, it's two, it's a, it's a, a modified PEG and a modified PVA. So um, those two products when mixed together um, form a hydrogel that's hydrolyzable. Um, and so it, it's a nice rigid gel that forms in situ. And then over time, um, the bonds naturally hydrolyze and it goes back down to its original, um, close to its original um, products, modified PEG, modified PVA. And those are very, very small, you know, less than 50 kilodaltons. So antibody size are smaller. And, um, and uh, the product is supplied as two powders. You add PBS to the two powders. And then once you mix the two solutions, um, you have several minutes to use the product. Um, Clinically, we've had a couple of iterations. You know, there's iterations in the lab and then there's iterations in the actual clinic. And, um, you know, obviously to get to the clinic, you do a series of biocompatibility studies and a host of animal studies and there's back and forth with regulatory bodies. But um, you still don't really know um, how something's going to work until you go to the human. Um, and, um, you know, the way we set up our first study was what we call an adaptive clinical study where we basically... Um, since we're doing something that's never been done before, and we're actually treating retinal detachments in a way that's not really been done before, um, we wanted to learn from each patient and modify um, the, the, not only the, the surgical protocol, but the preparation and other things around the hydrogel that might need to be changed um, to make sure we were, you know, 
uh, developing an optimized product. So there's definitely been iteration in the clinic as well. Um, so it's, it takes thick skin. I've, I've got a lot of respect for people that have uh, actually brought a product to market that was novel because um, it's definitely always, there's always going to be, you know, significant bumps in the road. Can you say a little bit about uh, the clinical iterations that you went through? Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, originally we were conceiving of filling the entire eye with the hydrogel, um, just like you would do a silicone oil fill. And so the whole back of the eye would be filled with the gel and it would seal the retina completely 360 degrees. Um, and it, that was nice because, you know, you, you didn't have to be thoughtful about hydrogel insertion. Um, you had to be thoughtful about your laser so that you identified all your breaks and laser, but you didn't have to be thoughtful about hydrogel insertion, just like you're not thoughtful about gas or oil insertion. You just, you know, make sure it's not overfilled or in the concentrations, right? Um, but um, even though these products were breaking down into tiny components, um, you know, in, in the first three patients that we did this in, we did see high pressure uh, upon hydrogel clearance. So at four weeks or so after surgery, um, the patients had high pressure. And um, so, you know, that's not really viable. Um, you know, we can't have every patient having high pressure at four weeks, um, you know, if we're going to try to replace what's a relatively safe surgery, which is, you know, vitrectomy with gas. Why did, why did um, the pressure go high? That's it probably has, yeah, it's a very interesting question. It probably has to do with just burden of product. So, you know, even if you inject antibodies into the eye, they're going to clear out without a problem. But if you inject like a billion antibodies into the eye and they're all trying to clear through the trabecular meshwork at the same time, it's, you're probably going to get a pressure surge. Um, I should note that all of those three patients did fine at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, a pressure surge that's bringing the patient into the, you know, emergency room is obviously um, a non-starter for, you know, an actual you know, therapy, we, we want to continue to advance. And so, um, yeah, we thought it was related to volume and related to just burden of clearance. Um, and so we, we thought, how can we do the surgery with less? Um, we tried, uh, you know, it was a, there was a lot of ideas, um, but basically what we settled on was um, developing a way, a mechanism by which you could focally apply the hydrogel just to the retinal breaks. Um, and so if you wait, a few minutes until it's a viscous liquid. Um, it kind of has the consistency of Helon at that point or, you know, visco. And um, we uh, had that, we developed a curved cannula. We basically said, apply the small amounts of the hydrogel directly to the retinal breaks. And um, then- under, that air, under, under air. Under air, retina attached, under air, laser done. And then go in and with a curved cannula, kind of like a curved laser and basically paint the hydrogel onto the brakes. Um, and um, that worked, you know, the, the patient that worked to treat patients for retinas were attached without any positioning. Um, we were blown away and patients had excellent vision just four or five days after a Mac off detachment repair because they had no tamponade in the way. Um, and uh, we significantly uh, uh, dramatically improved the pressure response um, that we saw uh, from this, you know, with this change. And, you know, it was probably related to, you know, using 1% of the volume that we were uh, using when we were doing the full fill. Um, I'll just say in the, in the rest of the patients for the pilot trial, um, there was some 
elevation and pressure. Usually it was around that four week time point. Um, and it was always less than a day and it was treated treatable with, you know, drops. But so um, there's further formulation changes we think we can make to address that um, last little issue. Um, it's never perfect, um, but we're on the on the one yard line in terms of um, of developing something that's pretty simple to use. Uh, kind of changes the way you think about a tamponade and how you might repair retinas and um, hopefully makes things a lot better for patients. What about giant retinal tears? Yeah, it should work for giant retinal tears. I think, you know, we don't know kind of what the brackets are around how much volume you can put in. Um, you know, to give you some example, um, you know, one of the surgeons did a retinal detachment with 11 breaks and put in 25 microliters of hydrogel. Wow. So when you're actually putting it, just like painting it right on the brakes, you use shockingly little. So I think even with the GRT, you could, you know, if you just painted along your, your tear margin, you'd still be uh, using way, way, way less than if you just, just indiscriminately filled the eye. So uh, how long does it take for the hydrogel to go away? And what does it look like when it's in the eye? So it's optically clear. One of our, you know, things was one of our criteria was that if we, we were originally intending to fill the eye, so we wanted the refractive index to be the same as vitreous 1.33 so that there would be no refractive shift. So patients could see after surgery. Um, so it's still clear, um, even though that's not really required, you know, now that it's being applied to peripheral breaks. Um, so I, you know, I've been told by the investigators that, you know, they, they can see it. They think they can see it. Sometimes it's hard. It's kind of like looking for, you know, if you imagine trying to look at for a puddle of viscose in the back of the eye, it's like, maybe that's there. Um, but you can see it clearly on ultrasound, which is interesting. Um, and so, you know, when you ultrasound these eyes day after surgery, completely clear vitreous cavities filled with fluid, and you can see a little, you know, um, uh, hyper-reflective, um, bleb uh, of hydrogel where, where you left it. And when does it, when does it go away? Um, clinically, it goes away like between three to four weeks um, on ultrasound. Um, and that correlates with, you know, what we saw where in terms of pressure increases around the four week time point. So it's interesting in, in vitro, it, it lasted for less time. You know, we were kind of targeting two weeks in the eye. It seems to stick around for a little longer, but um, Cleared, cleared from the eye by this sort of four week time point. What about macular holes? Great question. Um, it's interesting when you think about whether that would work for macular holes or not. Um, I'd say I'm 50-50 on whether it would work. Um, it could certainly work. It would definitely work to exclude fluid, right? So once you peel the ILM, um, you, you could put a dollop of hydrogel down over the hole and you would exclude fluid. But would you also, would you hold the retina open almost by putting this hydrogel there? Um, we did some experiments um, looking at that and it looks like the hydrogel would, would be too viscous to actually like dip down into the hole and like touch the RPE. So it might actually be fine. It might actually work like oil or gas and just sort of be a, um, a coating across the top of the retina and it would still allow that the you know, outer retina to migrate in. Um, so, um, it's a great question. It might be, it might be an, a nice, um, next study. <laughs> so where, where are you at? How many eyes have actually been in the clinical trial so far? So the pilot, the pilot study was small, it was seven, seven eyes. Um, and, um, 
the, you know, what basically what we're envisioning now is, you know, uh, moving towards the pivotal study, which will start towards the end of the year. And that study will be um, a much larger study that um, is uh, a randomized um, a controlled trial where we look uh, for, for a couple of things. One is um, non-inferiority to gas. So the patients would get, you know, either they'd be randomized to get either gas or a tamponade. Um, and we would be looking at retinal attachment rates at 90 days um, to assess for non-inferiority. Um, and uh, we would also look at for superiority of post-operative vision, uh, which should happen, should be, should be, because, you know, the vision will be poor in the gas patients. Um, and then a secondary measure, of course, is like quality of life uh, measurements for these patients. Um, and in the patients that have had, our, had the surgery done, um, uh, the PICA surgery, they, they have been, um, they've been very happy. They haven't positioned at all. Um, and um, they've had good vision um, just a few days after surgery. It's actually interesting listening to them talk about their visual experience. You know, in a patient with a Mac off detachment, a couple of days after surgery, they're, they're seeing, but it's like very distorted and warped. And then like four or five days after their vision is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. um, so they're probably watching in real time as the subretinal, um, the last remaining bit of subretinal fluid is, uh, is reabsorbed in the macula. Well, <clears throat> congratulations on this work. It's really great to see uh, uh, how a patient complaint, which every retina surgeon has heard and has listened to and has not really had much to offer, prompted you to make, uh, I think, a very significant advance in our understanding of retinal surgery. Uh, and I think it's good to call it a retinal. So you're going to call it a retinal sealant? Is that what, I think that's, that's a better way of thinking of it, yeah. Right. That, uh, other than a other than a tamponade from, from tamponade to sealant. That's a, that, that will be the topic of your American oh, ophthalmologic yeah. society thesis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get ahead of myself, Carmen, but um, and I also just want to ask, add that, you know, Tommy Strievsky, um, it was my yep. co-resident, -re co co-fellow and, and, you know, he and I worked on this together from the very beginning. So um, I, we, we couldn't have done it. I don't think either one of us would say we could have done it without the other. Yeah, I know. I know, Tommy. Uh, so I thank you for coming on Retina Synthesis. And uh, please promise to come back when the uh, pivotal trial is over. Absolutely. We'd love to. <laughs>